We have two Bible readings this morning. Uh, The first one, it's from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And go to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, and starting at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is God's word. Uh, My name's Phil, I'm the Associate Minister here, and it's lovely to have you with us, especially if you're here for the first time this morning. If you keep Matthew 21 open, and you'll find there's an outline so you can see where we're going, which will be on the back of your service sheets. Let's pray, and let's get going. Father God, we pray that you would bless us by your Spirit. We pray that the words I speak... And the response your words find in our hearts 
would please and honor you, the one who sees into the depths of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I think few things wind us up as much as hypocrisy. We hate hypocrisy. We hate it when politicians pass laws and then don't bother to keep them themselves. I didn't say which politicians or which laws stopped. I didn't. But we hate it. We dislike hypocrisy. But as so often, the things that most wind me up are often the things that I'm guilty of myself. And the truth is, all of us, all of us struggle with hypocrisy. You know how it is. There's, there, there's very few things as annoying as when you're driving on the motorway and there's a, a merge lanes in 400 yard sign and everybody behaves nicely except for that person who hammers up the outside and then pulls in right at the end. And it's just disgraceful, unforgivable behavior, so selfish. And the rest of us are trying to get there too. Why can't some people play by the rules? Until I'm in a real rush. But that's different. I'm not barging in. It's just, I've, I've just, I really have a legitimate reason why I just have to, I really do need to. Unlike them, they have no excuse whatsoever. We struggle with hypocrisy. We hate it in others, but we're not that good at dealing with it in ourselves. It's true for religious hypocrisy too. When someone says, uh, look, uh, you invite them to church and say, I don't want to go to church, it's full of hypocrites. The correct response is, don't worry, there's always room for one more. But um, (laughs) because all of us are, all of us are. All of us like to appear more than we are inside. And this passage shows us that's a serious problem because God is as deeply concerned, is more deeply concerned about the reality of our hearts and our lives than he is about the outward show that the world sees. He cares about the reality, not just the rituals. But thankfully, we'll also learn that God has a great commitment to cleanse our hearts from the muck of hypocrisy. What we see is there there are two scenes, um, and they're really two parts to each, and they contain a word of hope and a word of warning for us, a word of hope and a word of warning. Firstly, a word of hope. Jesus will purify his people. So verses 12 to 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What do you make of that? It sounds like Jesus is basically having a bad day. You know, didn't have enough coffee in the morning, maybe. I mean bit grumpy really for Jesus very far removed from what we saw last week of the gentle meek Jesus who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey but what we're seeing here is not look it's it's an off day a bad day for otherwise a very good man really this is the one perfectly good man who ever lived the God man God in human flesh What happens when he encounters what is bad, what is evil, what is wicked, religious hypocrisy? But actually the shock of what Jesus does mustn't blind us to the surprise of where Jesus is. We saw in last week, if you were with us, chapter 21, Jesus rides in on a donkey, but he rides in as the king. He's fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that God's promised savior king would ride into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. The king would come on a donkey. So where should the king go when the king arrives at his capital city? 
Where's the palace, right? That's where the throne is. But Jesus didn't come to bring a political revolution. He came to forgive us our sins, to restore our relationship with God. And so when he comes, he comes to the temple first. Now, the temple was the heart of uh, Israel's worship. You'll see uh, um, this is... This is the temple complex, an incredible, stunning, magnificent building, the, the temple of Herod the Great. It took over 40 years to build. And the bit where Jesus is, if you can see there's the, the low wall down in the bottom right corner, just inside there, which is called the Court of the Gentiles, that's where he is. And what he should have found there is prayer, dignified worship of Almighty God. And instead, what he encountered was something like a cross between Oxford Street on a Saturday afternoon and a petting zoo absolutely nothing of God there. Now, the temple had its own currency, so people had to change money, but they'd set up inside the temple. People needed to buy animals to sacrifice, but they thought, oh, we'll have the animals running around in the temple. And if every other religious site I've ever been to is anything to go by, I imagine they were selling knickknacks and souvenirs as well. And Jesus is angry righteously angry, holy in his anger. And so he should be. Anger is not a sinful thing. It's usually sinful when I get angry because I get angry about the wrong things to the wrong degree. But Jesus' anger is about the honor of God. And we should be angry about some things. When you hear six people, three little school children gunned down, you should be angry because that's wicked. And when Jesus finds that people desperate to meet with the living God can't do so because God's temple has been turned into a market stall, he's right to be angry. Now, he doesn't lose his temper. This isn't a sort of red mist descending on him. And none of the accounts record him laying violent hands on people. He flips over the tables and drives out the animals and the sellers. He will purify the prayer but he's not violent towards the people at this point. And what we learn really is that, well, the modest king is also the mighty judge. That Jesus is meek, but he is not weak. He's gentle, but he's not pathetically nice. And so when he finds the only space in the temple where non-Jewish people, Gentiles, can actually gather to pray has been utterly desecrated, polluted with nonsense. He acts in angry judgment. Now, lots of Old Testament passages in the first part of the Bible, they foreshadow and explain what happens here. So in Psalm 69, God's king declares, zeal for your house consumes me. And in the Gospel of John, he quotes that about Jesus in John 2. But the key text, I think, is the one that Jimmy read for us before Matthew 21 from Malachi 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. The Lord has come to purify the worship of the temple. Now, from everything that happens after this, from the discussion that Jesus has with the religious leaders for the next few chapters, I don't think we're meant to focus too narrowly on the issue of commercial activity in the court of the Gentiles. 
I think it's just representative. It's a, a visually obvious representation of the central reality that the, the temple religion was just corrupt to its very core at this point. Like the angry red spots of chickenpox reveal a sickness which is deep inside. So the marketplace that Jesus drives out reveals a temple system which has lost all sense of the worship of the holy God and has just become a self-serving human institution. That's scene one. Scene two is the response of the religious leaders. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now, the temple was the place where people were to gather. God said, look, when you pray at the temple, I will hear you. And so the temple is where desperate, needy people came to meet with God and and find his healing and his restoration. And so now the blind and the lame, they come to the true temple, Jesus, and receive the answer to their prayers as he heals them in God's power. And it's no surprise that Matthew mentions specifically the blind in verse 14. Because another group of blind people now approach, only they're afflicted with a far more serious kind of blindness, spiritual blindness. Sadly, a far more common one too. And the fact that they're convinced, we can see perfectly well, thank you, only makes their blindness that much worse. The religious leaders are outraged. And do you see why they're outraged? Blasphemy. They say, it's blasphemy. They're they're singing praise to you, Jesus, as if you're God. I mean, Hosanna, we we saw last week, Hosanna is um, God save us, Lord save us. And Jesus' response pours fuel on the fire. He quotes Psalm 8, which explicitly talks about children praising Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. He says, yeah, yeah, absolutely, they should be doing that. I am God. Now his point is not, look, there's something intellectually backwards about Christianity that you'll only get if you're like a child. His point is actually the, the one that's made in the famous story of the emperor's new clothes. You know the story, I'm sure. The, the cunning tailor who um, realizes a pompous, arrogant emperor just loves to feel superior and clever. And so he convinces him he's making a special set of clothes for his coronation. But these clothes are so special, they can only be seen by sophisticated, superior kinds of people, the intellectual elite. And so the emperor won't admit when he can't see anything on the loom. And none of his courtiers will admit that they can't see anything either. And when the day comes for him to parade his new outfit, he swaggers through town as naked as the day he was born. And no one will admit what everybody can see because no one wants to seem stupid until of course a child who knows no better than just to say things as they are says but he's naked I can see it and in their simplicity and lack of sophistication sometimes children can see through the nonsense that only very clever people can convince themselves of 
the religious leaders, well, they can debate the definition of, of blasphemy and, and whether what Jesus is doing uh, technically fits the, the law against blasphemy. But the children can say, he's opened the eyes of blind people. Only God can do that. And so they praise him as they should. Okay. Now, there is one key question we need to address if we're going to grasp what all this means for us, and that is, why on earth does Jesus bother? Think about it. The temple is going to become obsolete within just a couple of days. As Jesus dies on the cross as the final sacrifice for sins, the temple ceases to have any use. All that the temple was in symbolic form Jesus shows himself to be in glorious reality. The temple was where you went to meet with God, and Jesus is God in human flesh. We meet God in Jesus. The picture that was the temple is the reality of Jesus. The temple was where you went to offer sacrifices to deal with your sins so you could be forgiven. Jesus will die as the final sacrifice for sin, fully buying forgiveness on the cross. So given that, given the temple is about to become completely obsolete, why on earth does he bother driving out the changers and the traders? Isn't that like insisting on cleaning the kitchens in the Titanic as the ship is going down? I mean, seriously, Jesus, what is the point? But that's not how Jesus sees it. He is unfathomably patient and gracious. And I think this is where we see a scene of judgment actually speaks a word of hope because as well as seeing the blazing concern of Jesus for the purity of his people's worship where we see his depth of commitment to clean up the ugly mess inside our hearts because Jesus is committed to cleanse and purify what looks to us a lost cause the countdown that has been running for centuries has reached the last week of the last month of the last year before the destruction of the temple, and yet still Jesus calls them to reform. Still Jesus acts to cleanse and to purify. Tragically, the religious leaders refuse Jesus' gracious work, but this encourages me. God doesn't give up quickly on his messed up people. It spurs me to pray for, well, it even spurs me to pray for my own institution, the Church of England, for all the mess, for all that must anger God. I must keep praying and working to see God's cleansing, purifying work until it really becomes too late. And the same is true for you and me as individuals. You do see Jesus' commitment to cleanse us. He came to deal with our sin. He came to bring forgiveness and change for you. And he is at work to clean us, to drive out the sin that rots our souls and brings misery to us and, and such pain to anybody who is in close relationship to us. And the more tightly I cling to my sin, the more deeply I let its roots grow in my heart, the more painful it is to have it cut out. But be encouraged. There is hope as you see Jesus' just almost unending commitment to keep working to cleanse his people. Now, I think as Christians, we can get very worn down with the struggle with the sin that dwells inside us that continues. We feel like sometimes I've been fighting the same sin for year after year after year, and I don't feel like I make much progress, and I just get discouraged, and I'm tempted to give up. 
don't. Jesus is much, much slower to give up on you than we are to give up on him. A word of hope. But after the word of hope comes a word of warning. Jesus will judge fruitless religion. The second half of the passage is a dreadful warning where we will end up if we resist his efforts to cleanse and sanctify us. Scene 1, verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Jesus is a man, as well as God, and he gets hungry. And in the distance, he sees a tree full of leaves. And so he expects to find figs. But when he gets there, there are none. Covered in healthy leaves, all the appearance of fruitfulness, just no fruit. And when Jesus curses the tree, he's not being petulant and hangry. He's giving us a visual parable. The tree represents Israel, and in particular their religious worship at the temple. All the appearance of spiritual vitality and and godliness with the stunning temple building and and all the hundreds of priests busily performing their duties and, and the formal prayers and the rituals and the sacrifice and the incense rising up. But it was all just leaves. There was no fruit, no genuine spiritual life at all. The heart of Christianity is love for God and love for other people. That's the fruit which a genuine relationship with God has to produce. Love for God and love for others and everything that flows from that. But there was none of that. It struck me studying um, this week that after Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they sewed together fig leaves to cover up their shame. And all the impressive temple religion of Jesus' day was just fig leaves covering the shameful nakedness of Israel's religious hypocrisy. And God could see through it just as easily as he could see through Adam and Eve's pathetic attempt to cover themselves. Now, Jesus is right to curse Israel's religious leaders for what's going on. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations, shining out the truth about God. But when the peoples of the nations, hungry to know God and and desperate to find forgiveness and spiritual life, when they came to the temple, what did they find? Nothing. Buyers and sellers, leaders full of hypocrisy, pride and greed. No fruit to satisfy the longings of spiritually starved, hungry souls. I'm sure you saw uh, Louise Casey's report into the Met Police released just a week or so ago. Utterly damning the venerable history, the smart uniforms, the mission statement, all the smiling adverts over the tube with the the women and ethnic minority officers on them, and all, well, according to the report, revealed to be fig leaves underneath all of that. While there are many fine police officers in the Met, she described the institution as a whole as broken and rotten, guilty of institutional racism, misogyny, and homophobia. And the result has been an absolute collapse in public confidence in the police. Now, we can't be sure how much public confidence there was in temple religious worship of Jesus' day. What we do know is God had no confidence in it at all. He could see through the hypocritical sham. He could see the ugly, selfish, godless hearts 
and he'd rejected them. Scene two, the disciples uh, rather miss this point and fixate on the miracle itself in what happens next. When the disciples saw this, verse 20, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, Jesus' answer seems to to focus on prayer, but tellingly, he uses the phrase, this mountain, the temple mountain that they're looking at. His judgment has figuratively cast the temple into the sea and all that goes with it. It is a sobering warning, this passage for us. Israel's leaders have turned the worship of the one true God into a human religion. They've played God for a fool. Yeah, so long as we perform the rituals, so long as we stand up and say the right words, he's got to bless us. It doesn't matter what pride and filth there is in our hearts. We just play the game. God will do what he's meant to do. It doesn't work like that with God. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, he has been warning them with his prophets, speaking his word to them. And they've rejected him. And now at last, His own son has come and spoken the same word of warning to them. They've rejected him. And so judgment day has arrived. The apostle Peter declares in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. That's always the way with God. He doesn't give his people a pass. His judgment comes first to us. Okay, what does this mean? Well, I think we can apply this passage in expanding circles. Firstly, most directly for Israel, this is the most dreadful moment in their history. As the judge of the universe pronounces his condemnation, may you never bear fruit again. Time has run out. The time of warnings is finished. The time of judgment has arrived. That's the end of the temple. It has been rejected forever by God. Secondly, I think that warns us today that Jesus is deeply concerned for the purity of our religion. And whenever a religious institution, a church, denomination is marked by impressive services and rituals and and has a great and wonderful history, a heritage uh, of delightful, glorious things, but there is no spiritual vitality today, no fruit Well, don't expect God to just shrug his shoulders or be impressed by the performance. Thirdly, this passage speaks to each of us individually. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that you, if you trust in Jesus, you are a temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit lives in us if we trust in Jesus. We are little temples. And Jesus is equally concerned for the purity of these temples as he was for the purity of the stone temple in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus is not like your local C of E school. You know how it is. The admission criteria, 10 church for 13 Sundays or 26 Sundays if they're really harsh for three years and you're in. doesn't really matter whether you believed any of the stuff there or what. As long as you were there, turned up, did the right thing, you're in. It's not like that with God. As long as you tick the box, perform the rituals, get baptized, come regularly, 
maybe give a bit, you're in. Jesus came to forgive us our sins and give us new hearts. He came to perform a real and radical work of salvation. And if there is none of the fruit of a changed heart, well, then we may be fooling ourselves about whether we really do belong to Jesus. And that ritual of baptism with little Joel just a few minutes ago, it was an outward and physical ritual but it's meant to signify an inward and spiritual reality. And it counts for nothing unless Joel grows up and puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same goes for all of us. A word of hope, a word of warning, but lastly, a word of grace. So what do we do if, like me, you know that your heart is often very corrupt? perhaps like the temple of Jesus' day. I know that there should be worship of God in my heart, but actually there's love of money. It's all commerce. An obsession with earning, with saving, with accumulating worldly comfort and security. What do I do if I look at my life and I fear that there's a lot of leaves and not a lot of fruit? What hope is there? Well, the hope comes just a few days after this incident in the temple. The one who laid violent hands on the tables of the money changers allowed far more violent hands to be laid upon him. He who declared judgment on Israel suffered the judgment of Almighty God as he hung on the cross in our place. His life was taken. His blood was poured out. And in his blood is forgiveness and cleansing and the power for real change. I explained last week that the the cry that went up as he rode to Jerusalem, Hosanna, son of David, means save us, Lord. And like children, we can cry that out too. Spiritually blind and lame, we can turn to him and we find healing and restoration. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, then today if you turn to him, your sins are wiped away and his spirit will begin the work in your heart. And then keep coming to him every day because every day he has the power we need to change and cleanse us. And his forgiving grace will never run out and his fountain of cleansing will never run dry as long as you live. To those who proudly cling to hypocrisy and care only about fig leaves of surface religion, this is a terrifying passage. And please be terrified. But to those who humbly confess our ongoing need of cleansing and forgiveness, who recognize we're not what we should be, here is hope. The hope we need in the Jesus who cleanses, who forgives, and who transforms. We're going to begin our response by praying together the words of this confession. Whether this is the first time you've prayed this with real meaning, or you've lost count of the number of times, be confident. God has never turned away those who've turned to him. Knowing that he sees everything in our hearts, that Jesus has paid for all of that and more, Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, 
we acknowledge and confess our many sins which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking your wrath and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for all our misdoings. The memory of them grieves us. The burden of them is more than we can bear. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that from now on we may always serve and please you in lives wholly renewed by your Spirit to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear these words of assurance. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And God can see through it. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The band's going to come up and lead us in this wonderful old hymn of confidence in Jesus' cleansing power. Do read through the words as they get prepared.